contractors face the prospect of higher mandatory wages and treating independent subcontractors like employees. And that's not all. The vaccine mandate might be coming back. So how are companies reacting? We turn to the Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council, Stephanie Costro. And Stephanie, I want to start with the possible return of the vaccine mandate. This happened Friday in relation to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals ruling and the White House guidance that came out immediately afterward is almost unintelligible. And that's not just me speaking. That's four or five people we've already spoken to about this. What do you see is going on here? It looks like it's turning back into a giant patchwork. I'm so glad that you brought this up, Tom. The the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force website upon which all of this has been hinged. Um, you know, if you look at the contract clauses that were incorporated into existing contracts, it refers back to this website. The website was updated on Friday afternoon to indicate that, you know, as you mentioned, the, the court ruling back in August takes effect today, October 18th. Um, and that is to say that court ruling was to lift uh, partially the nationwide injunction on enforcement of this contractor vaccine mandate. And it's a matter of making sure all of uh, the workers within federal contractors are vaccinated. And the deadline for that was supposed to be back in January of this year. It was tied up in the court since then. What's interesting about this is that um, there are several steps outlined by the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force and the White House that could lead to requiring federal contractors to be fully vaccinated if they have a federal contract. And what are these steps? The first one is, um, you know, now that we're, you know, October 18th is the day that it's supposed to, this, this lifting of the injunction um, is supposed to take place. OMB wants to notify agencies whether those contract clauses should still be included. So that's the first wicket. The second wicket is, you know, the task force will update its protocols and then the director of OMB will look at this updated guidance and make a determination whether it makes sense. Is it in the best interest of the government for economy and efficiency? Those are the standards by which we normally judge these things. And then that determination will be published in the Federal Register. And then if that determination is made, OMB will provide guidance in written form to agencies. So this is a multi-step I mean, it's a cotillion, really, in terms of all of the moving pieces and all of the steps that have to be gone through. What I find most interesting is on that website, it clearly says that unless and until that third step is completed, agencies should not take any steps to enforce the vaccine mandate anywhere in the country or enforce contract clauses related to it. So I always, having been a former Hill staffer myself, should versus shall, it says agencies should not take any steps. I just wonder what exactly the contracting officers are thinking about this language. The appeals decision says that there is no nationwide injunction against the vaccine mandate. And instead, only those entities that sued and the companies involved are enforceable or not having the mandate. So right. you really don't know what an agency will do in a given area then, correct? That's exactly right. You know, the parties to this lawsuit were building and contractors and then also six I believe, six or seven states. And so the initial decision was to put an injunction nationwide. And then the appeals court ruled that that is not, that's an overreach and that it can only um, pertain to the, the entities who are suing. And so you have to look, if you're a contracting officer, at the states that are still under this injunction versus the states that aren't. Do you have the building and contractors anywhere in, um, in the mix here um, because it doesn't pertain to them. It really is very, very messy. And, you know, having having spoken with folks at the White House about what this all means, they refer us back to this website. And I would say, 
as an update, it's not clear what the next steps are and what contractors should do as a result. We're speaking with Stephanie Castro. She is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. So wait and see and try to decipher you know, the tea leaves in the meantime because they were pretty vague about what and when they'll do from the federal contractor, federal agency standpoint. And I think everything is open uh, for discussion, right? Is it 100% of your employees if you're a federal contractor, which it was previously? I mean, there's a lot of wiggle room and and what it means for contractors. You know, the wait and see approach is frustrating for them as they move forward. To be watching a website waiting for guidance is a difficult position to be put in. Yes, it sure is. So just be sure to use that Wayback machine so you make sure you, what the, what they said is actually new here. And, or constantly hit the refresh button, right? Right. And then also affecting contractors, this idea of the administration wanting to treat gig workers as employees, that is wanting companies to treat their gig workers as employees. And a lot of federal contractors use gig workers, writers, consultants, this kind of thing. What are companies in the PSC world saying about this? So this is a fascinating topic that's been batted around for years now, and that is the role of independent contractors, or in some cases they are called 1099 workers. And the gig folks are the folks who kind of put together their own schedule. They love having the flexibility to work for multiple entities, um, but they don't get benefits and they don't get health insurance, et cetera. So what the Biden-Harris administration has done through the Department of Labor, they released a proposed rule, this independent contractor rule, how do you classify people? And there is a six-part test, and this is nothing new. The six-part test has been around for a while, but the ones that the Biden-Harris administration are emphasizing are things like broad-based, is the worker economically dependent on a particular company? And if they are, according to the six-part test, economically dependent, then they should be treated as employees. And that drives the cost up because obviously the fully burdened cost for compensation for hiring folks is much higher because you do have to to pay into the system. And it does reduce flexibility for the workers. So what happens to the folks who get reclassified as employees, um, but they don't want to be employees. They want to have the flexibility. They want to be able to pay quarterly taxes as an independent contractor versus having it taken out of every paycheck, et cetera. So we're watching this very closely. Comments are due on November 28th and PSE. We are working with our member companies to submit pretty robust comments on this one. The issue of the project labor agreements has also come up now. That's also in the rulemaking docket. Not too much time to get back to the Department of Labor on that one. Comments are due today, October 18th. And so this is one of those areas where they are proposing to require a major construction contract. So anything valued at $35 million and above would need to have project labor agreements in place. This is a pro-union, uh, pro, pro-organized labor move. My heartburn, if, if I could use that word with this, is that there is no data, there are no data to support whether for these large construction contracts, whether or not having PLAs, as we call them, uh, not, not the People's Liberation Army in China, but the project labor agreements are actually effective in, in making sure things get done on time and efficiently. So this is something that we are submitting comments today to address. And I invite anyone who is in the, in the, um, construction world, the building world, the general contractor world, to take a look at what the Department of Labor is proposing. 
Is there any bridge to professional services of this type of rule? So there is a bridge in terms of, you know, you've got architects and engineers looking at construction. You know, it is whether you're a subcontractor or a partner or in a teaming arrangement with a construction company on these. So professional services, we, we are weighing in with, with the information that we've gleaned from several member companies who have expressed interest in this. And the final issue I wanted to ask you about is federal insurance response to catastrophic cyber incidents. There's some recommendations from the Government Accountability Office, Homeland Security, Treasury, assessing the need for a federal insurance response for critical infrastructure risks. And again, this is kind of a perennial, but back to the front burner, what are contractors' feelings about this? So this is another area where PSC will be submitting comments on behalf of our member companies, because as they face insurance requirements for cyber risk. I will give you an example. A particular company got back to me very quickly and said they are seeing 63% increases in their premiums year over year for cyber insurance. And so they are also facing a situation where their prime contractor, if they're a sub, is requiring them to have cyber insurance, even though the contract doesn't require the prime to. So we are facing a situation in which some of the smaller companies are really hurting to be able to pay these insurance premiums um, that are being required by their primes and in some cases by the contract. So a federal insurance constructor's framework to work in would be welcome in this area. So we are going to be submitting comments. They're due mid-month in November, November 14th. Um, and it's an area where we're going to help figure out how to define catastrophic cyber incidents. What are the nat- what's the nature of them, et cetera. And this will be helpful for particularly small businesses. I guess if they shut off the heat in the winter and turn off the computers, that's a catastrophic cyber incident. It could be. It could be. I think they have more in mind the bad actors. But yeah, it could also be energy. All right. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. 
So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation. But it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, so not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, those, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, 
one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those you know, sort of blue sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short term pieces, right? And you get that buy in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all, and a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate 
And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield. And this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.